these are just a few of the motivational quotes that have appeared in my Twitter feed regarding fear. Thinking will not overcome fear, but action will. If you want to conquer fear, don't sit home and think about it. Go out and get busy. There is no illusion greater than fear. Everything you've ever wanted is on the other side of fear. For many people, I'm sure these quotes are incredibly motivating. But for me, well, I just don't buy into the whole concept of conquering your fears. Fear can be incredibly paralyzing. And I know, I know I'm being literal about these quotes, but I just think that fear requires a more nuanced approach than pulling up your tube socks and bulldozing through it. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode four of Yoga Land. The truth is, having lived through panic attacks and depression in my 20s and breast cancer in my 40s, I know a thing or two about fear. There's what I think of as fear light, you know, fear of spiders, flying squirrels, fear of public speaking. And then there are the heavy fears, the fear of leaving our drug-addled, verbally abusive boyfriend because you have no savings and nowhere to live or the fear that comes up when you or someone you love is facing a life-threatening health condition. Either way, what works for me is to approach fear directly, but also tenderly. Running away from it or trying to brazenly blast through it will rarely lead to resolution, and you'll potentially miss out on the learning and self-reflection that come with working through difficult emotions. The person who's taught me the most about using yoga and meditation to work with complex inner states is meditation teacher Sally Kempton, and she's my guest today. Sally is one of the most important voices in the modern yoga world. She teaches devotional contemplative tantra and has been practicing and teaching for 40 years. Sally spent 20 years teaching as a swami in the Saraswati order of Indian monks. In 2002, Sally began teaching independently, and you can now study with her through her Awakened Heart Tantra workshops, teleclasses, retreats, and trainings. Sally's also the author of several books, including Meditation for the Love of It and Awakening Shakti. I had the honor of working with Sally for several years as the editor of her column for Yoga Journal, and I can attest to the fact that she's a phenomenal teacher, and she's also just a good egg. She's genuine, she's funny, and she truly loves and cares about her students. So here's what Sally had to say to me about working with fear. Hi, Sally. How are you? I'm so good. so nice to talk to you, Andrew. You too. Thanks so much for being here today. We worked for such a long time together at Yoga Journal, and I still think of you as the queen of navigating life issues from a very practical yet spiritual place. So today we're going to talk about an issue that's so natural for all of us, but I actually don't think it's talked about very much, and that's fear. I know. Yes. And I was thinking, if it makes sense, we could talk about kind of three different kinds of fear or three different levels of fear. So the first being the fear that comes up around practice and getting quiet. And then the second being the fear that comes up when you want to make a major life change or a major life change has kind of happened to you. And then the third one being the fear that comes up when you or someone you love is facing a health crisis. So really like the ultimate fear facing your mortality. So we'll, we'll start a little lighter and and then get a little heavier with the fear that comes up around going into deep practice. 
I'm wondering if you can actually recall feeling this type of fear yourself when you started practicing yoga and meditation, and if you can talk about that a little bit. Totally. It is actually something that comes up a lot for students, and it's, you know, it's one of the main questions I get. One of the things that happens when we start to go deep into meditation is that stuff begins to come up. And at the early stages, it's often just the endless parade of thoughts, which is distracting and you know, boring and discouraging. But as we start to get deeper, consciousness literally begins to expand and, there, and something unexpected happens. You know, it can be something like the breath slowing down um, or even stopping for a moment. Or it can be really feeling your, you know, your inner body in a way that's unusual or a big spiritual experience, a big light or, you know, a, a booming sound or in some cases, and this was one of my early uh, fear and meditation experiences, an expansion that is so big that you, you feel that your, your body is dissolving, hmm. you know, which is the indication of a very deep state of meditation. But if it's never happened to you before, there is a very natural kind of fear reflex that occurs. And I, I trace this as all fear, you know, as all fears, I think, are ultimately traced to that, you know, that inborn fear of dissolution or dying that, that the individual ego feels. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that it's a very natural part of our fight or flight reflex. Right. It can feel like the ground is kind of coming out from under you. But you're saying that that can also just be part of opening up to actually connection. My personal experience of moving through things that frighten everything from climbing, a, you know, from walking on a trail up a mountainside where the, when the trail becomes very narrow and, you know, and the, the drop is big. And the question is, are you going to continue on the trail or, you know, get into your vertigo? In other words, situations, comparable situations happen in the physical world, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I found that the same principle obtains, you know, when, when you have a breakthrough experience in meditation and you have that sense of visceral fear, this is so unusual, you know, something awful might happen. It's very similar, I find, at least for me, to standing on the edge of a 3,000-foot mountain and looking over the side and realizing that if you're not very careful, you could possibly fall. Mm -hmm. Same feeling. So, and what I learned to do in hiking and trail, trail hiking is when I got really scared, I would stop, turn back, do it again the next day. And I'm a very cautious person. So usually by the third time I did it, it would feel familiar enough so that I could move on to the next stage. And then at that, that point, it would be no big deal. You know, I'd come to that, that place where the trail is narrow and I would just go on walking. So uh, I have found that for me, Working with fear of the unknown that comes up when you're in deep meditation. Very often the first time I back down. And the second time I can go a little further. And the third time as though a new stage has opened. That's the way I, I work with that kind of situation. By literally giving myself the opportunity to just to step back from the edge and then reapproach the edge another day. Yeah. And literally desensitize myself to fear. And I think that in many of those kind of visceral fear situations, like fear of water, for instance, you know, that kids feel when they're learning to swim or fear of jumping off the high dive, that accustoming yourself 
is a really big help. And the thing about meditation, you know, the other thing that happens in meditation, which may be what you're referring to, is that when we go deep in meditation, all of the, a lot of the time we start experiencing the kind of shadowy sides of our personality or the anger, the irritability, the grief, you know, the, just the stuff that's mm-hmm. subconscious. And that meditation is meant to clear out. So a big part of the process of meditation, if you, if you do it for a period of time, if you're serious about it, is that, that this stuff will start to come up and you might spend an entire meditation period just looking at your feelings of unworthiness or, or fear itself, for that matter. You know, some kind of nameless terror might come up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get into one of those experiences and just say, okay, not for me, I can't meditate, it's too scary. And what I would say is it's really the same principle. If you can let yourself be present with the fear, feel the fear, come back from the edge if you need to, and then go back to the edge the next time, you will literally, you'll desensitize yourself to the fear and you'll be able to move past it. But of course, the one thing that doesn't work in working with fear is saying, okay, this is too scary. I'm never going to, hmm. ever going in the water again. I'm never going to jump off the high dive. I'm not going to meditate. And that's what cuts us off from really exploring our edges. Yeah. Some spiritual teachers, mostly guys, will say, okay, you should face your fear and do it anyway. Just crash through. That is such a popular yeah. mantra right now, right? But. Oh. It's all about, you know, you can overcome, you can, you should face every fear you should. And it's not the most sensitive way to deal with a really big emotion. It's not. And often it just makes the fear bigger you know, right. or, or you suppress it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, if you're willing to be present with the fear as much as you can, you know, don't try to make yourself go farther than you want to go right up to your edge. And that's really important to go, go as close to your edge as you can. Come back from the edge. Be completely intentional about taking the next step and going a little past that the next time, which could be five minutes from now. You know, if you're in a if you're if something is coming up in meditation and it feels too scary for the moment, you know, one thing you can do is just stop, open your eyes, take a few deep breaths, do a forward bend, and then go right back to meditation and be present with it. Or you can wait till another time. Mm-hmm. You don't back down in front of the fear. But as you said, you don't just try to crash through it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying to me also speaks to the importance of, if you can, finding a teacher. I think most people would not just start doing yoga without having a teacher, Do you know, wouldn't start doing a physical practice. And right now, the whole mindfulness and meditation movement is becoming more and more popular. And I think that's awesome. Like I can't say enough great things about that, but I think maybe doing meditation with an app and never having met a teacher, you might not know that all of these things you're talking about are completely normal, that you are going into a different state. Really good point. And you know, that it, that having just someone as a touchstone, like you've always been a touchstone for me and you've always been so great about responding, you know, even when people email you. I think you're so great with your students about responding. Um, just having that touchstone and, or even being in a, in a group and hearing other people's questions about meditation can be just 
really calming and can kind of help you get past that fear. Totally. And, and it, you know, satsang on meditation is so helpful. Even if you have a, you know, like a group of friends, Mm -hmm. there's going to be someone in the group who's more experienced than you or who's, you know, who's been through this, who can say, don't worry about it. Here's how to work with it. Right. So, yeah, I agree with you. Having a teacher is really helpful that way. Having some kind of, let's say someone you can touch base with or even friends. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing is there's been a lot written about fear and meditation. This is where it's helpful to read, to read books, to read teachers. You know, there's so much around. The thing I've noticed as a teacher and also as a practitioner is that we, when something happens that feels very dramatic, we often think I'm the only person who's ever had this experience. Totally. That's so true. And it might have been fine for them, but for me, it's not. Right, know? right. So, and that's why the company of others is so helpful that to begin to understand that your experience is normal. Right. And that your psyche is not crazier than anybody else's psyche. Everybody's psyche is crazy. Right. So. Right. Right. And the idea that like, okay, you know, everyone's psyche is crazy and there might be some things that are uncomfortable the first time you experience them. But I love this idea that you are talking about that you know, with the knowledge that if you go in a little bit too deep for your comfort, you can just come back out. I think it just kind of sets you up for a better experience. Like every, anytime I do something for, with my three-year-old that's new, I front load the experience for her. Like I tell her what's going to happen and then she feels more in control of the whole thing. So it's it seems similar to me. It's very similar. It's very similar. And, and one of the things about you know, we're grown-ups and we're on, a, we're on a spiritual path or at least a growth path. And I think pretty much all of us knows that fear is one of the edges, that one of the frontiers that we have to cross whenever we're facing a challenge. Right? One of the most important things that you can learn to discover if you're willing to, to go to your edge is that if you let yourself feel the fear, explore the fear, make the fear itself an object of contemplation in that moment, Okay, so what does fear feel like? Where is it in my body? You know, is it in my heart? Is it in my gut? Oh, is it burning? Is it pushing? Is it, what are the voices? What is, you know, what are the thoughts that are going on? And actually give yourself a little while just to explore your own fear. You know, one of the great things about meditation is that that you actually can sit quietly and look at this stuff that in normal life you don't look at carefully enough to be able to work with it mm-hmm. is a kind of a power in, in actually exploring fear, how your fear manifests. And then, of course, later on, when you're facing fear in a life situation, you can recognize it. And the ways you work with fear in there, you know, we'll talk about some of those later, hopefully, really does have to start with recognizing the feeling of fear and being able to identify it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, find, to be able to find the feeling in your body because otherwise it just drives you. You know, you, you react to it without quite recognizing that it's just a feeling, it's just an emotion. Therefore, it's workable. It sounds like what you're saying is when you're not in the midst of a life situation and feeling fear, like in, when you're in the midst of a life situation and feeling fear, you often feel like you don't have any choice but to react. That's just like you, how your body is primed. So you're saying when you're in meditation and feeling it, 
you can witness it. You can look at it. And then what's next? Like you feel it in your body. And how do you advise people from there? First of all, just feeling it. Exploring it. Then allowing yourself to recognize the, the kind of wider spacious presence that, you know, that is actually always there around any emotion or any feeling and kind of letting yourself become aware of your own, the aware presence that lets you feel the fear hmm. so that you actually create a little space around, around the emotion. And one of the classic ways you do that is to sort of psychically step back from the fear and be the observer. But another way that you can do it, which, and again, this works, this works best in meditation, and I've found this incredibly transformative, is once you start, once you feel the fear, find it in your body, find the somatic signature of it, and focus on the felt sense in your body. And then imagine that that felt sense is, you know, located in a particular part of your body. And then imagine a space around it. In other words, imagine a field of air or a field of space. And then just let the fear be there as a feeling, felt sense, and then also feel the wider sense of space. Hold the two together. And if you get sophisticated with it, you can begin to experience how, as you breathe, just let the breath come and go inside the feeling of fear and also in the space around it. And what will start to happen is that the edges of the intense contraction of the felt sense of fear in the body will start to, to open, kind of relaxing and releasing will happen. And this is the time-honored somatic way for working with intense fear in the physical body. It really, really works, and it actually has a much deeper effect than the effect of the moment because it starts to, to melt the, the neural wiring, you know, that keeps the fear reaction in place. It almost sounds like it's by allowing it to be there. Yeah. You, you allow it to be there you and you it. give your, and you feel it and you give your body some space to not be completely overtaken by it. It exactly. starts to dissipate. Which, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Your brain starts to disconnect from that intense feeling of being overtaken by it. Yeah, and it actually gets you to realize that I, you know, myself, am not, not the, the fear one. I am the one who can hold space for it, mm. psychic space for it. And after a while, one of the things what I learned to do is, is feel the mother spaciousness. In other words, feel that the space that can be created, the psychic space that can be created around an intense feeling of fear has a kind of motherly energy to it. So this is an act of imagination. But it's, if, you can, if you can just imagine, okay, my consciousness, my awareness is holding this fear just the way a mother would hold a child. Uh, it brings a, you know, a, a very comforting feeling into the space, and you start to realize that you actually have the power to comfort yourself, to to mother yourself. That's or, major. That is yeah. so major. I mean, if that's the only thing you take from yoga and meditation, that is so huge. Because 
once you can feel your own feelings and you know that you're capable of withstanding that, whether they're really challenging or really joyful, then you can also model that for other people. You can do that for your children. And it does make you happier to be able to know that you can feel these really intense things and you're, gonna, you're still going to be there. You're still going to be okay. Yeah, you can, and you can hold yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think often we, we know we can hold others. At least That's true. Around them. We long to have someone hold us. And yet, ultimately, strength is in being able to hold yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and how when your kid is screaming and, you know, when you're being in your most motherly self, you know that to just hold her. No matter how freaked out she's being, it'll, it'll, she will eventually yep. relax and release and be okay. And, and to just be able to be willing to apply that to ourselves is so huge. Yeah, it is. You know, the yeah. other thing that this I just want to kind of put out there is, and I know that many people who are listening will already know this, but some might not. Kind of the wider culture right now, we talk a lot about mindfulness meditation, and that's just one style of meditation. and. I have always been so drawn to your approach to meditation, which is not just strictly mindfulness meditation. If you try a style of meditation and it really doesn't work for you, what you are just describing is an actual meditation. It's just a meditation with a visualization, right? Exactly. And it's a, it's a meditation that, well, there, I mean, there's different components to it. You know, and, and the idea of exploring the emotions, of course, something that's taught in mindfulness practice is one of the important aspects of mindfulness practice to be present with the whole feeling of it. But the idea that your own consciousness, your own awareness can be experienced as through the imagination, as becoming wide or as turning inside to explore the inner channels of the body or to connect to a mantra and connect the mantra to the centers of the body or to the central channel. These are all very powerful meditation practices. They really do expand your sense of your own possibilities. And, you know, while we're talking about meditation practices, I want to say that one of the most powerful practices that I have, I discovered that I teach and that is a kind of devotional meditation in which you invoke some form of higher presence or sacred presence, you know, whether it's goddess, which is what I often teach, or whether it's Buddha energy or Christ energy or, you know, the energy of, of a kind of overall feeling of love, that connecting yourself to a higher, wider, sacred presence that, that you can experience as being other than you, mm. you know, as, as, being, as holding you, as, as helping you is incredibly helpful for almost everybody. And ultimately, we find out that that presence is not different than us. That presence is our own higher self. But at many, many times in meditation, I've found over the years that to imagine presence as a loving, grace-filled deity or you know, teacher or divine mother as, as Durga or as, you know, Buddha or as Mother Mary, however, I might want to imaginatively conceive that presence. It's both comforting, it's mind expanding, 
It allows you to explore territories that you might not if you were just feeling, I have to do this on my own. You know, because the fact is that although this is not a fashionable idea in the postmodern world, the, the universe around us is filled with helpful energies who are invisible, not always seen. And when we open ourselves to, to find that power of grace and care and help, it's unbelievably beautiful how present those energies are. So meditation is one of the ways we can do that or explore that. Mm-hmm. I think it can be hard for people to feel that if they feel like perhaps maybe their family of origin or sort of their primal relationships didn't have that helpful energy. I mean, I had a wonderful family of origin, but we all have like our, you know, our issues here and there. And I think when I first really started to feel deep states of meditation, I was just really pleasantly surprised to put it mildly by how much love and support I felt from, like you said, these unseen energies. You kind of just have to go and trust a little bit, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and be willing to sort of put your postmodern skepticism aside for a minute. Right. And just say, okay, you know, there's a wonderful inquiry because another really helpful and important way to meditate and to meditate with fear is through the practice of inquiry, like to ask yourself, you know, something like, is this fear real? Is it really real? Or to ask yourself, is there love? Is there any love present anywhere here? Mm. Is there help? I think, you know, to literally ask that question, is there, is there something in this atmosphere, in the atmosphere that can give me wisdom or that can give me a feeling of tenderness? To just ask that question and without wanting or expecting an answer in words, this is really important. Just open yourself to feeling the very subtle presence that really is there. Mm-hmm. It, again, it sometimes takes some experimentation. Some people have very dramatic initial experiences. Of, oh, oh, yes, there's, there's a sense of being loved and held. But for some people, you, especially if our family of origin is not that loving or trustable, some of us have to try it again and again. But this is one of the ways in which the, the path itself, you know, the fact that there have been so many teachers and enlightened people and seasoned meditators who have discovered this truth about the fundamental loving quality in the subtle world. You can kind of say to yourself, well, all these really smart seasoned people who were not idiots, you know, they say that, that the, the fundamental nature of, of the subtle universe is loving. Mm. Let me just accept that for a moment and see if I can find it. You know, that's one of the ways in which the presence of a teacher or the presence, you know, or the, the reading in the traditions, whether it's, um, you know, one of the Christian mystics or someone like Eckhart Tolle or, you know, one of the many modern teachers, you know, will tell you, yeah, it's, it's there, it's possible. And if, if it's possible for me, it's not because I'm just a special, I'm a special person. It's possible because it it is the deepest reality that we can all touch.
Moving on to the fear that comes up when we go through a life change. I mean, what's interesting is I think oftentimes when we have a traumatic event in our life, like whether we're grieving or whether we're, you know, we've been broken up with, or, I mean, it it actually is a wonderful time to use your yoga and meditation and your spiritual practice. So what kinds of practical things can we offer for people who are like on the precipice of a major life change and it's bringing up a lot of fear and anxiety for them? Well, again, I I, I do think that that we always do have to start with feeling it, with letting ourselves feel it and recognize it. And I, I just advise one of the best things you can do for yourself is be willing to feel feel fear, feel where it is in your body, hold space for yourself. But in terms of navigating intense change and the, you know, all the fears that come up, you know, whether it's the bag lady fear or the fear that you'll never get over your pain, what I've found is that a lot of what helps me and other people is looking at your self-talk, looking at what you're telling yourself about it and noticing what you're telling yourself about it. And usually it's a kind of worst case scenario. You do have to be able to give yourself another alternative to say, to ask yourself, okay, is this really true? To say to yourself, actually, to change the way you're, you're talking to yourself you know, it's one of the first line defenses against fear and pain that we're given now by cognitive therapists and mindfulness teachers. But it's very, very practical. Hmm. So I've never forgotten something that the Jungian psychologist Marie-Louise von Franz said. She's a writer, and uh, she, she wrote a lot. And, and she had this nasty father voice. which would always say to her, nobody wants to hear what you have to say. You know, you don't have anything to say anyway. You'll never get this done. You know, it's... And she learned that she just had to talk back to her father voice. You know, she had to say, actually, actually, I can do it. Actually, you know, good things happen when I, when I write. Actually, I know how to take care of myself. I know how to do this. So it's actually very skillful to know, to know what your voice will sound like, to know what your awfulizing and worst case scenario voice sounds like, and just talk back to it. It's a discipline, actually. Right. Because so often our self-talk is patterned, right? Patterned. You just notice the pattern. Exactly. And and then when you notice the pattern, you say, no, I'm not going down this road. Instead, I'm going to go down this road. And Mm -hmm. I know many people, myself included, who who in every moment of, of great change, transformation, loss, the same old voices come up there, the same voices that were there when you were 13. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Big difference now is that, A, you have life experience, which tells you, I think that's really important, that, that none of it is the end of the world. And that even if it is the end of the world, that it's, it's going to lead to growth. Right. It's going to lead to some kind of growth, either life growth or spiritual growth, new wisdom, new capacities, inevitably follow a loss. And to, to have enough life experience so that you can say that to yourself, the first boy that you break up with when you're 14, <laughs> it really is the end of the world. You have no experience that they'll ever, you'll ever love again. Right. That's an example. When you break up with your boyfriend at age 20, you've had a couple of experiences. The learning curve is that, not so steep. Yeah. And you know you'll get over it. You know there'll be other people. You'll right. know you'll, I think that, that that willingness to accept failure as an inevitable 
part of life that that is not the end is really one of the I think one of the things we one of the the ways that failure can help us mature again many people say this these days if we can say okay this was failure what did I learn what's my next move step by step and in terms of grief big grief or health fear I do think and I'm sure you agree with this that basic self-care is really important I mean all that simple stuff like taking a bath and you know making yourself physically comfortable and you know making sure that you're eating right and and uh, calling a friend and you know just just creating human interactions or yeah interactions getting a massage these are not small things yeah they're very sort of mundane but and again this is a this is something that I don't say everywhere but I really, really believe in frantic petitionary prayer. <laughs> so, you know, you know, like, I can't do this. Help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've, I found that it always works. At least it makes me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. When I was facing a cancer diagnosis last year and, I th- you know, the hardest part, and most people s- say this, is the diagnosis phase because you, there's a lot of tests and a lot of waiting rooms, and a lot of waiting for results, and waiting for phone calls. And every time the phone rings, you panic, and the phone rings a lot from the hospital. And it's a really agitating period. And I knew that I needed to calm down, and I really could not sit by myself. And I I could not do yoga practice by myself. I could not sit and meditate by myself. And so what helped me was actually your yoga globe practices. And what was amazing was that I could put them on my phone with the app and I would take them. I had, I did the chakra one a lot and I would take them to the waiting room while I was waiting for an appointment or right before a scan. And it was incredibly helpful, but I needed that outside connection with someone guiding me so that my mind was being, was being led somewhere, was being guided instead of just going to the vast empty space. I couldn't quite handle it at that time. I think that's really, really important and really helpful. I do the same thing when I have to get in an MRI machine. I, I make sure I have a spiritual teacher mm-hmm. you know, guiding me on the earphones. Because yes. It's just cr- because that atmosphere of a voice, of a soothing voice. Yes. It just shifts your awareness and sound is so important. It's amazing. Yeah. And actually, I'm just remembering this now. You gave me the advice to listen to chanting the day of the surgery. And I did. I I had to get to the hospital like five or six in the morning, some ridiculous time, because you have to do all these check-ins and paperwork and all these things and they have to get you ready. And so I had to get there very early knowing that I would just be sitting waiting for several hours for the surgery. And actually the surgery was delayed because that's just kind of what can happen with an OR. You don't want to rush someone else out of surgery. So you just kind of have to be patient. I'm not exaggerating when I say that everyone who came into the room, because I had my earphones and I just kept the chanting on the whole time. And everyone who came in was kind of like, wow, you're, you're seem really calm. You're in a really good space. And I just... I just felt so connected to something outside of myself on that day. 
like so supported and connected. And I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want friends around. <laughs> I just wanted to be there and do my thing and do what had to be done. So yeah, that was a, that was a really helpful piece of advice that you gave me. I'm so glad, you know, many of my friends who in that situation going through that, you know, horror show of cancer diagnosis and treatment have had a similar experience that somehow the intensity of the difficulty when you really put mantra into it, Mm -hmm. I have found that mantra is so incredibly powerful in just shifting the whole, the whole state of your inner body. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you wrote um, that I just took a little note on before the interview is that fear is a threshold emotion. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? On the one hand, what we were talking about earlier about how fear comes up at thresholds, you know, like at the beginning, at a moment of change, it's almost as though no change or no beginning can really happen without fear coming up. And, you know, of course, the positive side of fear is actually heightened alertness. The so-called fight or flight syndrome, which we think of as bad and stress-reducing, like we now understand that it actually brings brings our energies and our senses together so that we have more energy for, you know, for what we need. So fear focuses us, and it's very useful that way. Mm -hmm. And it also is a signal that that we're stepping into the unknown, Mm. which which is a good way of holding fear. Okay, I'm feeling this fear. So what is the unknown? What is the growth edge here? Mm -hmm. What am I being shown? Like a lot of people are afraid of public speaking, for instance. One, One thing that I discovered about public speaking, which I, as you know, do a lot of these days, was that fear would arise and it would heighten my senses, which was a good thing, but it also would produce enormous anxiety. And I discovered that that one of the motivations for the for performance fear, which I think is a big thing for many people, is to to say to yourself, what motive can I go into this with? It is a motive of service. That is, that will take me past my my desire to look good, you know, to be moved up, to be liked, to seem smart. <laughs> what service am I? performing in in doing this whatever it is you know so that people will feel better after a hard day or so that people will learn something it just connects you to a goal higher than your own self and that's a big help in in a lot of challenging situations that's so interesting i have never thought about fear so when you said you know a lot of people fear public speaking the first thing i thought of was yeah. And I think that that's related to being, feeling out of control, right? Yeah. Like maybe my voice will shake or maybe I'll forget something or maybe. So I started going down the path of like control, but I hadn't really thought about that. It, that fear can be an ego e- issue, you know, that it can be that the ego is afraid of whatever the ego is afraid of. Exactly. Ego is afraid of failing. He goes yeah. afraid of failing. Yeah. All the time, right? All the time. And and a lot of the fears that cripple us, if you think about it, are fears of failing, making a fool of yourself. Right. And um, I, I used to write these soupy, sort of folky, romantic songs that I would be embarrassed to sing to you. And I couldn't really sing that well, but I loved to sing. My fifth grade teacher thought it would be a great idea for me to sing one of these songs in assembly in front of 
the school. And I sang this song and it was, first of all, not the kind of song you sing to an audience of 10 year olds. And second, I didn't have a good voice. And as I was singing, I looked out over the audience. And everyone was kind of looking at their lap. You know, <laughs> people are when you're really blowing it and they, they can't even look at you. And then I went to the lunchroom afterwards and everybody was looking at me. <laughs> I, I mean, it was my first experience of humiliation. Yeah. And, and, you know, as these things tend to do, it kind of cured me of, of thinking that it was a great idea to sort of stand up and sing public. But the thing about having an, an early experience of public humiliation is that you're tempted to just never do anything like that again as long as you live. Right. And when you find yourself in situations where you realize that you actually have to for whatever reason, whether it's your karma or a professional obligation, then you have to, you have to see the fear of failure for what it is and you have to do what you need to do. The control things that you have to do in order to do your best to make sure it doesn't happen. Right. Which means you know, preparing properly, you know, not doing things you really suck at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so all those things that are under our control as human beings, you know, if it means if you're giving a talk and it means that you have to write your words and then study them well enough so that you can get up and give your, you know, speak without notes, then you do that. Right. Then it, throughout the process, you keep saying to yourself, how will this serve? How can I do this in such a way as to be helpful, you know, or as an offering? Mm -hmm. So it's not about you. And it takes you out of the, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to make a fool of myself zone. I think that the, having the motive constantly looking to how can I serve something higher than my own ego is a really powerful way to overcome fear as you walk through life. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's simultaneously motivating and life affirming. And like you said, it gets you out of fo focusing so much on yourself, which let's face it. I mean, when we do that, we just become ner neurotic. It, you know, we have the possibility of becoming neurotic. Between the twin, the twin pitfalls of um, overconfidence and and underconfident. <laughs> right. So we have to find a place where we're appropriately confident and appropriately humble. Right. Right. That's funny. That's funny. Well, thank you so much, Sally. I feel like we covered a lot of ground and I'm just so happy to share your teaching and your approach with, with everyone. And I am so grateful for all that you do. Well, Andrea, it's, it's always utterly delightful to engage in this conversation with you. I love you and I love working with you over the years. I know. I love you too. <laughs> and um, yeah, I hope you'll come back and we can talk about more exciting things. Thank you. Okay, my dear. <laughs> big, well, big love to you too. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I always learn so much every time I talk to Sally and I feel like she shared some incredibly valuable insights in this conversation. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode four. And I'll put links to Sally's meditation practices up there, links to her books up there, and links to some great foundational books about meditation that Sally and I recommend. You can find more information about Sally at sallykempton.com. 
And if you want to know when new episodes like these go up, follow me on Twitter at Yogaland Podcast. You can also send me questions or comments there. I'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you for listening and talk to you soon.